we have gone through the holy day of the Feast of First Fruits, uh, otherwise known as Pentecost Eve. And uh, as a result of that, we understand, of course, that we have the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. It was poured out. And as a result of that, we can understand what the full meaning of the Feast of First Fruits is all about. It is that indwelling of God's Holy Spirit that makes us our God's first fruits, of course. And we learned a lot of things in the course of preaching uh, in regards to what God's Holy Spirit can do for us, of course. And it is a, a spirit of power and of love and soundness of mind, and, and it gives us gifts of the Spirit and so forth, and it empowers us. So we learned a lot of things about God's Holy Spirit and how it actually connects us to our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a familial relationship. But there's another spirit extant in the world, one that is not holy. And that spirit entity, of course, truly does have a presence. And it has an effect upon this world. And that spirit realm is referred to in God's word as a kingdom, a kingdom of darkness. And it is, instead of hegion pneuma, which are the Greek words for Holy Spirit, it is ponerius pneuma, which are the Greek words for evil spirit. There is an unseen evil spirit presence at large in the world, and it affects everything that has ever happened on planet Earth from the Garden of Eden right up to now, and it will continue to do that, of course, until it is taken out of the way, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and it is dealt with as only he can. That spirit entity affects everything. And like I said, God's word refers to it as a kingdom of darkness. And we can see that. You don't need to turn there. I will eventually end up there. But Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 does indeed tell us that, that it is a kingdom of of darkness. But what I want to do today is some, something a little different in terms of a sermon. It's, uh, I suppose it's more of a Bible study, but really when you get right down to it, isn't that what a sermon is supposed to be? They're all supposed to be predicated on what God's Word says, of course. And so that's what we're going to do today. What I want to do is to explore at least some of the reasons why things are the way they are addressing the fact that there is this unseen dark kingdom, how is it that it's here? Why did that happen? How did that happen? And there are a number of things about the angelic realm that we really don't know, of course, but the Bible does indeed give us a lot of clues, a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of dots that we could connect to know certain things, of course, as God's Spirit leads us into truth, connecting the dots, as it were, providing that insight for us. So I want to find out today what we can about this evil kingdom and its source and what empowers it. So let's turn, first of all, to begin over to Hebrews chapter 1. And if someone... Oh, here it is. Thank you. I see someone put water up here. I'm starting to be 
in need of it already. <clears throat> I've been struggling now for about six weeks with uh, problems with my voice, my throat. I think, it's, I think it's the pollen. Is that bothering anybody else? It's terrible this year. And uh, it's causing me to have a continuing uh, laryngitis. And it's, uh, it's not so bad at the moment, but I can feel it ramping up, so to speak. So here in Hebrews chapter 1, <coughs> there is a verse of Scripture that is often just sort of passed over. But it is a, uh, th- there's a, a, a great amount of education in this one verse of Scripture, and it is Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, where it tells us, that all of the angels, the entire angelic creation, was created for a specific purpose. Now, before I begin, I want to uh, back up to verse 13. The Lord said, and it's quoted here, as if it were God the Father. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Uh, The general consensus by most people, and I I happen to believe it was uh, the Apostle Paul, And it's likely that he quoted it to someone who wrote it down. It has the sound of Paul, but the grammar actually uh, is somewhat different than the way he normally writes. So I believe that he quoted it. It is a book of great intellect, and the the Greek is the most uh, grammatically correct of all the New Testament scripture. Uh, And Paul is the great intellect of the New Testament. That's why I think it, it comes from him. But he says something here in regards to the angelic realm. He goes back and forth uh, showing the, the, the dichotomy, for lack of a better word, I'll use that, between, between man and the angelic realm, specifically the man being the Lord Jesus Christ, but also it's us. It's about us. And here in verse 13... God is being quoted here, and it says, But to which of the angels said he, that is, God the Father, to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? And clearly the implication is, is that he never said that to any angelic being. And it's important for us to note that because, believe it or not, there are literally millions of professing Christians who believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is Michael the archangel. That, of course, is, is not supported by Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a created being. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate form as God the Word, is in fact the creator, and all of the angelic realm owes its existence and its life and the sustaining of its life to the Lord Jesus Christ because it's all upheld by the word of his power. But the point is made here, and he makes it over and over again. In the first and second chapters of Hebrews, we see this, well, for lack of a better way, I'll describe it as a a tension. And I think there's an understanding here that we can tumble to that something caused an angelic rebellion. Something in past eternity caused the angelic realm, at least one-third of them, to not want to go along with the program. 
And I believe that it's quite apparent that they did not want to serve. The very concept of Satan's name, the designation Satan, Satan, as it is in the Hebrew, it literally means adversary, one who stands in the way, one who opposes. He and his followers oppose God and man. He is the adversary of God's program. He is the adversary and opponent of what God is attempting to do in terms of engendering children. That is the reality of God's word. That is what God is doing. That's what God has set into motion from past eternity. And they are in opposition to that. A third of them have rebelled against God and the service that they are required to give to man. They've rebelled. And the human nature that we have should help us to understand how that could be because the human nature that we have really comes from one of those angelic beings, the one who's called the God of this world. Our natural human nature is not anything like Jesus Christ or our Father but it is very, very much commensurate with the unseen God of this world. To which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? I can well imagine, can we not all well imagine that that didn't sit well with at least some of the angels in light of the fact that at some point in past eternity, they became aware of the program, of a necessity they had to know about the program in order to serve the program. And at some point, it began to dawn on them, we're going to serve these little clay images of God. And how is it that he has made them to have upright bipedal motion, opposing fingers and thumbs, eyes and ears, stereoscopic vision and hearing, and and the ability to compute and come to conclusions and decisions and be autonomous? Why, wait a minute. We're not like that. We don't look like God. They do. Could there have be, be some jealousy starting there, of course? And I think that we can understand that there was indeed. Turn with me as we go on in this study back to chapter 1 to verse uh, 3. The Lord Jesus Christ, being the brightness of his Father's glory and the express image of his person upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There again, that may have been a, 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 an instance of, well, jealousy, of coveting that spot for one's self. Being made so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And what is that name? A name that was resented by the angels. Son. We just read that. To which of the angels said he at any time thou art my son? He never said that. But to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has obtained a more excellent name, and that is son. And I've said on numerous occasions that when we've been in the kingdom for countless millennium, when we have met the Lord Jesus Christ in the air and we have become one with our Father and His plan for us, on out into eternity, there is no badge of honor, there is no accolade, there is no praise, there is nothing that can ever be sweeter to us or more impressive to those around us or to the angelic realm 
than to be called the Son of God. And at some point, connecting the dots, just reasonably understanding that we really are going to have a familial relationship, and at some point, can we not well imagine that we may be summoned to the throne to visit our Father? Or maybe we'll just want to go home to see Dad, if I can put it in such human family terms. And as we do, perhaps Gabriel or Michael or some other angel, as you approach with your new name that God is presently designing and thinking for you, a name that will say who and what you are in real terms. Do we not know that, students, that God is presently thinking up a name for us? You know? And as you approach... Perhaps some angel will say, Behold, the Son of God approaches as your name is read, as your name is pronounced. Yes, can we not well imagine that there may have been some resentment of those realizations at some point in past eternity by a being and his followers that the Bible refers to as one who seals up the sum of wisdom and beauty and perfection? and that he was lifted up because of it in his own vanity and pride. And perhaps we'll explore some of those scriptures in time. But at verse 5, again, of chapter 1, For unto which of the angels said he at any time? And the language is clear. He never said it at any time. That's the point. Unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Well, brethren, we all know that the Lord Jesus Christ is being referenced here, but this reference absolutely fits you and me as well. We are going to be his children. He's going to be our father. In fact, Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, says that we are going to be his children. He will be our God, and we will be his sons. Verse 6, again, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he saith, let all of the angels of God worship him. Could that also have been a reason for some consternation, some resentment? After all, he's telling them that they must worship a human being, a God-man, the man-God. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world as the first begotten, he was entirely 100% flesh and blood, human being like you and me, retaining absolutely no self-inherent power that he had retained as God the Word. When he was here, he was just like you and me. He got tired, he had to sleep, he was flesh, he was made under the law, he was able to be tempted, and he was. He was able to be angry, and he was. He was able to be hungry, he was able to be cold, he was able to bleed and die. He was a human being in every respect. If he mashed his thumb, he hurt. Oh, just like you and me. And they're told to worship him. Yes. In fact, they are to serve all of humanity. Could that be a source of resentment? I think we understand, of course, that it is. He said, let all of the angels of God worship him. There's a a significant piece of theological understanding there that millions of Christians have passed over. 
If we turn to the book of Romans, which I won't for time's sake, but in the first chapter of the book of Romans, Paul makes it clear that it is wrong, incorrect, and in fact a sin to worship the creation rather than the creator. You following me, students of the Bible? And yet right here, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. That verse of scripture alone right there is definitive proof that cannot be argued against that Jesus Christ was not an angel because God would in effect be telling them to do something that he had forbidden. Are you following that line of reasoning? Yes. Verse 7, and of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. Somewhat difficult to understand, beautiful King James language, but it in effect says this, and I'm reading from a compendium of a number of different translations who have it somewhat clearer. I like the old King James language. I grew up with it, and it's not a problem for me, but as the years go, go by, more and more people are not that familiar with it. But the fact is, verse 7, of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. In other words, regarding the angels, he has made them to be spirits like the wind, the word is pneuma, on fire, as it were, to serve. He has put a fire in their belly, so to speak, to serve man. He made them to have a passion and a zeal and an eagerness to serve, an inner fire. That's the way we would use that metaphorically, a fire to serve the heirs of salvation, them being like wind, being like spirit. And the word flame, the flame of fire, it's significant. It is flux or something similar to that from the Greek I'm trying to not look at George over here. I know he's sitting there. <laughs> Flagizo. Did I say that right? I did. Yeah. And it literally means to, to set something on fire. Hence to be on fire, as it were. So they were on fire to serve man. God designed them that way. He created them with a zeal to serve man. Out of spirit. Out of pneuma. That's what they are. But verse 8, but unto the Son, unto the Son of God, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but that impresses me because God the Father is being quoted here. And he's calling the one he's referencing here, his Son, he's referring to him also as God. Sort of reminds me of the first chapter of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and so forth and so on. God the Father is saying, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity as a man, as a fallible flesh and blood man. That's the point. That's the context. Therefore, consequently, God, even your God, even I, that is, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Very, very powerful stuff here. And you, Lord, and the word Lord is kurios in the Greek, and it literally means the boss, the owner. It can even be used in a simple way to infer the landowner or the landlord. 
He's in charge. He's the boss. He's the Lord. And God the Father is addressing him as the Lord. The Lord of what he's doing. The Lord of this purpose. The Lord of creation. The Lord of what God has set into motion. You, Lord, in the beginning, the beginning of the plan, have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Now, he's referencing everything that he has created. And we can turn to other scripture. I already quoted part of 1 John, or John chapter 1, that is, that nothing was made, everything that has been made was made by him, and without him was not anything made that's been made. And we could turn to the book of Colossians to, to reaffirm that, and a number of other places, that everything was created by him. And as we will see, as we read on through the book of Hebrews, all of creation, everything that has been created, including the angelic kingdom, because it was created, all of creation is going to be under our dominion, under our domain, under our leadership, under our rulership. And that all-inclusive term of everything, of all of creation, is also referenced here. And it may possibly even include the angelic realm when it talks about Jesus Christ folding up all of creation and changing it into something else. The word is a lasso. It means to become something else, to be completely changed. At some point when the creation, including the angelic creation, including heaven itself because it was created, God is eternal, not heaven. God is eternal and nothing else is. At some point, God brought heaven into existence so the angels could have an existential awareness of their own being. God doesn't need that. He's omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. And he alone is. The angels are not. They need it. He does not. He's everywhere present. Are you following me? And at some point, it's all, we're told, going to be rolled up like a scroll and it will be changed. That includes them in some way, beyond our perfect comprehension at this point. But when they've served their purpose, when this creation has served its purpose, God has something else in mind. Verse 11. They shall perish, that is, all of creation, is ticking down, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as does a, doth a garment. It'll wear out, as it were. And as a vesture, you shall fold them up, and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years shall not fail. But then again, he reiterates this point. He keeps driving it home. There has to be a reason why he keeps driving it home here. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? Now, the, the most modern Keeney Greek translation allows us more understanding. It understands the grammatical content and the, and the intent that, that is original in, in the Greek language that may not perfectly translate. In other words, the, the, the most recent translation of this would be, are they not all sent forth from creation to serve the heirs of salvation? Yes. That is the, the simple exposition of those words. 
They were created for that purpose. They exist to serve the plan. They exist to facilitate what God is doing in terms of bringing the heirs of salvation to that conclusion. That's the reason for existence, of course. Now drop down to verse or chapter 2. And let me just break into the text. I'm getting long already, so I'm going to have to go fast. At verse 5, he says, Unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. He didn't put the angels in charge. It is put in subjection to us. The angels have not received that. But now we're starting to get to it here. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Well, actually, it was said on uh, other occasions. uh, The first time, it was in Job chapter 7, verse 17. And Job illuminates that for us in some respects. But then David enhances that illumination. Verse uh, Psalm chapter 8 and verse 4, he also makes that uh, that question and begins to supply some answer, but but the complete answer is now given here. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? And verse seven, you made him a little lower than the angels. Temporarily speaking, yes, a little lower for the ability to simply physically die. You made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crowned him, crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. Yeah. That's all inclusive. All that has been created, all that the hands of God has endeavored to do to bring everything into creation. Verse 8, thou hast put all things, and that's all inclusive, all things in subjection under his feet, under the feet of man, for any, and now he reiterates this with, with driving this po- point home. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Yes, we don't see it yet. We, but we have these scriptures, we know it's going to happen, but we do see something that reinforces it for us and makes it sure for us. We see Jesus who is not only the prototokos, the firstborn from the dead, he's also the prototype. He is what we shall be. John said that when we see him, we will be like him. We will recognize him for who and what he is, and we will be like him. And in the book of Romans, we're told that our inheritance is co-equal with him. And so we will inherit all things, All that has been created was created expressly for us to be under our feet, under our dominion. And we now see the Lord Jesus Christ inheriting that as the example. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, like we are temporarily, but crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And I'm suffering right now with this throat. Allow me to take another drink. 
For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one. There's that reference, all of one. Over and over we see that in the New Testament. And in fact, we, we see it for the first time in the Old Testament, where it talks about the fact that God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And the word is ikad, and it means a multiplicity of one. It is related to the concept, the very concept of Elohim, the plural of God which is Eloah, singular. And it is an a open-ended understanding of one. It is God's definition of one, a completely different understanding than one digit or one number. It is like one congregation. There's a whole bunch of us here, but it's one congregation. The church of Jesus Christ is one church, but there's a whole bunch of us. The word school is that kind of word. The word army is that kind of word. A cluster of grapes is an ikad. One cluster, but any number of grapes. And this oneness that the Bible talks about, that the Lord Jesus Christ expounds at some length in John chapter 17, is a clear reference here again, where he said, Father, I will that they be one with us, I in you, and you in me, and we in them, and they in us. That is the goal of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we not well imagine that such a lofty goal may have been somewhat hard to take for an angelic realm? And indeed, that was the case. We know that a third of them rebelled against him. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name. That name is Father, the familial name. We have the right to say that now. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, in the midst of the ecclesia, in the midst of the called ones. I will sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Some of you may recall that I recently expounded John chapter 6, verse 44, and John chapter 6, verse 65, where the Father must draw you and then give you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation is contingent upon that. The Father starts it, He must draw you and then give you to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is reiteration, of course. All that the Father has given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, part of the same flesh and blood, that through death, listen to this, he might destroy him that had the power of death, the kratos of death. Wow, that's a power, that's a Greek word that means, it really means power. <laughs> He's got the power, he has authority. He has the ability to go before the throne of God and demand the death sentence because the wages of sin is death. He has that power. He has that authority. And God is obliged to allow it to play out because the angelic rebellion continues. And it's not a done deal. And in years gone by, it was portrayed that the two-thirds of the remaining angels in heaven are now locked into their will and they no longer can sin. 
I wish somebody would show me a scripture that comes remotely close to saying anything like that. There is no such scripture. They are free moral agents. And the very reason that Satan the devil is allowed to go there should be obvious to us. God is obliged to allow it to happen. He doesn't force us, and he doesn't force the angels. He did not force them. They have free moral agency. And Satan the devil has had considerable success. And he's encouraged by that success. He's encouraged by success with us as well. He got a third of them while they were with God. They weren't isolated somewhere. He didn't, have to, he didn't have to spirit them away somewhere to whisper in their ear. Now, there may have been some whispering in ears. I don't know. Can angels do that? I don't know. <laughs> but they were with God. They had to be thrown out of God's presence. The point being, they were deceived by this very clever individual while they were with God. Yes. While they were in his presence, while the light of his glory was on them, they were deceived. Yes. And they had to be thrown out, as it were. Pretty powerful individual, to say the least. And the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told very explicitly, came here, one of the many reasons he came here, to destroy him who has this power over us, to demand our death for the wages of sin, that is, the devil. And so the Lord Jesus Christ came here to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Very truly, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Yes, he was, he was made like unto Abraham, the seed of Abraham made under the law like us, made of flesh and blood, in order that he could be the propitiation for our sins and make reconciliation for us. Now, if you would, brethren, turn with me over to the book of Jude. And I will drink again. At verse 6 of the book of Jude, it tells us something that's very, very informative. It talks about the angelic realm, and it talks about the fact that the angels, we know there were a third of them, kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, and he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Now, this word, first estate, that they did not keep, uh, the word is, and I'm going to have a difficult time uh, expounding it, but it is peri or peri or something along that line, and it can mean a number of things depending on how it's used. It can literally mean a location, but it can also mean a purpose or a function or a duty depending on how it's used. So they had a, a function. We've already read that they were created for a specific reason, a, a specific estate, a specific peri, a function. But it also can mean, like I said, a, a location. 
and he has reserved them in everlasting chains of darkness as a result of that. Oh, and this word habitation is important too. The word habitation is oiketerion, a place of dwelling or a place of duty, a place of office, a place of being. It can mean a house or, as it's used here, it can mean a, a purpose, a place of purpose or function. So they left that. They had a place, a, a reason, a, a function, an estate, but they left it. And as a result, God has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness under the day of judgment, the great day of judgment. And in the book of Revelation, turn over there briefly with me to the book of Revelation. In chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, it's an inset chapter. There are a number of them, especially in prophetic books. The book of Revelation has a number of them, as does the book of Daniel. And here in chapter 12, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed of the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child, cried travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And so we can see the symbolic language here, of course, representing the Lord Jesus Christ and representing the church. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. And so we know from this and from other scripture that Satan did indeed draw a third part of the stars of heaven. And we also know that the Lord Jesus Christ referenced the fact that he was cast down, that he was cast out, as it were. His tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth, and the dragons stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And we can see the, the uh, irony of that, of course, in, in terms of what went on at the time of the Lord Jesus' birth, but in a, in a broader context of the, uh, Satan's uh, attempts to destroy God's church as well. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And uh, we don't have to make more out of that than, than we're told there, but days usually in prophetic parlance usually means years, and this would add up to 1,260 years, uh, the church began to go into hiding and to, to flee to a place of safety, as it were, during the reign of Constantine. And from Constantine, you can come forward 1,260 years to the founding of this country, which is a providence of God as well. Just a little sidebar there. But verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Now, I just want to clear something up because I, re I remember 
numerous sermons over the years, in decades gone by, where it was portrayed that this war in heaven references an angelic rebellion and Satan and his angels attacked the throne of God. Anybody here ever hear that in a sermon? Yeah. Well, in case you did, let me set the record straight. That didn't happen. That never did happen because we're told that Lucifer, Hallel, the bringer of light, the word Hallel having an etymology with Halel in terms of providential meaning. I see I'm getting a critical look from George. And that He's, we're told that he has the seal of wisdom, that he's perfect in his intellect, he's perfect in all of his ways. And I submit to you that in light of the fact that he actually knew God personally in ways that we don't, that if he ever entertained the thought of actually attacking the throne of God, he instantly goes from being the seal of wisdom to the seal of stupidity. No, he, he never attacked the throne of God. He simply, he sowed rebellion. He, he was, he was a, a source of dissension in heaven. But the idea that he actually attacked God is ludicrous upon its face. What, what did he think? He could, you know, punch God out or beat him arm wrestling or playing checkers or anything else. He never entertained such a thought. He's an intelligent being, not a stupid being. He knew that he could never attack God. If he had attacked God, he would have even lost the support of his own third of angels. He didn't do that. He's more subtle than that. He created dissension, and he had to be thrown out. The war, the fight, the struggle is because they didn't want to go. Can we not well assume that heaven's a pretty nice place? They didn't want to leave. They had to be physically or forcefully, as it were, ejected. There was war in heaven, and the word is polemos, and it can mean a single fight or a battle, or it can be a protracted struggle, it can be a war, it can just simply be a, a struggle. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, Satan in the Old Testament, And it literally means, like I said, opposer, adversary, one who stands in the way, one who resists, one who resists the will of God, one who is contrary to God's plan in regards to man, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Yes, and they are here now. And he goes on here. The verse of Scripture, I think that it's important for us to include in terms of our own comfort. John went on to say, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation. Again, understand, this is an inset time-wise. Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. And so at some point, we can understand that there's going to be a finality to it all. There's going to be a conclusion. A plan was set into motion which eventually has a conclusion. And in that, he's going to be finally cast out once and for all. And I believe that's what we're reading about here. And in that moment, in that instance, can we not well imagine that his insanity is is complete at that point? His rage is now full. 
he has now realized and been forced to accept the fact that he has failed, ultimately has failed. And now he's cast down to finally be here, to never again be at that throne. And as a result, he comes down with great wrath. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. The word here is not chronos, it is kairos. And it means that he knows that the program is about to be over, as it were. His, his time is, is about to be up in that respect. Now, if you would, turn with me over to the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told some very comforting things, and we're also very much informed here about this being and the nature of him that infected all of us, and that fact we are still dealing with. It is the carnal human nature that Paul wrote about that tells us that we are not naturally subject to the law of God. And here in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, you, you, me, we, us, he has quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've had an experience with Jesus Christ and our Father. We've been forgiven. We have the indwelling of his Spirit. We are now the first fruits. But, verse 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. Prior to our involvement with Christ, prior to the knowledge of the truth, prior to our beginning of our conversion, we walked according to the course of this world, according, get this, to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, a spirit that worked in you and me and in all of mankind. And every human being from Adam right up to now, with no exceptions except Jesus Christ, has been mentally and emotionally and in some cases even physically molested by him. And he has successfully monkeyed with your head and your mind and your emotions and every other human being who has ever lived with the exception of Christ. Everybody who has ever lived has suffered from this individual. And his spirit is the spirit that we call human nature. And we absorb it. My precious great-grandchildren here and all the children here, can we not remember when they came into this world, what a blank slate it was. Nothing was written there. And they were so innocent and pure. Some of them still are. But in short order, they start going to school and getting out into the world. And what happens? We begin to see the effects of the God of this world and the, the unseen presence of, of that force that he exerts. And we see what begins to happen. And we see that innocence begin to erode. Do we not? Somebody say amen. Thank you. Yes, we do. And it comes in almost like osmosis. Yes. And we begin to absorb it. And that's what we're reading about here. And it begins to affect us. And we begin to behave like the God of this world programs us to behave. With the acquisition of God's Holy Spirit, which is the mind of Christ, we begin to get well. 
with the mind of Christ, my mind starts to get fixed. Your mind begins to get fixed. Your insanity starts to get healed. You move from what you were and your degree of perverted thinking, twisted thinking. I'm not saying this to insult you. I'm saying it because you all know it's true. And now we are moving towards sound thinking. We're moving towards the mind of Christ. We're moving towards the light, as it were. That's what God's Holy Spirit does for us in opposition to that other spirit. And he's called here the prince of the power of the air. The word prince is very significant. It is archon, and it can be used in a number of different ways from the Greek language. It means prince. It can be used to mean enforcer, magistrate, authority. He is the magistrate. He's the enforcer. He's the authority in this world. He's even called the God of this world. He's the prince of that realm. He's the prince of the power. And the word is exosia. He has the the authority. He is the prince of authority in the spirit realm in this world. And he has affected every nation and every human being. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And the word air here, I think, is uh, sometimes misleading. He's the prince of the power of the air. We don't have to make more out of that than it is. Does he broadcast like a radio wave through the air? Well, I, I don't know, perhaps. Certainly he can influence our thinking, but the word air is pneuma. And I think a, a better, clearer, simpler understanding is he's the prince of the spirit realm. He's the prince of the pneuma. He's the enforcer of the pneuma realm here, that he is Lord of, that he is the God of this spirit realm, this dark spirit realm. And prior to our relationship with Christ, we all were like this, among whom also we all had our conduct, our anastrophe, our way of walking, talking, living, being, thinking, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, fulfilling his desires for, of our mind and our flesh. And we were by nature the children of wrath, his children as it were. The Lord Jesus Christ even characterizes it that way, that he was our father in that respect. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us, has made us spiritually alive together with Christ. And those are nuggets to hang on to, to reinforce our, our knowledge of the fact that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And I want to leave us with that positive understanding, of course, in 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians. How is it that in light of this evil kingdom, this dark kingdom, that, that we have come out of it and that we even know about it? How is it that we are able to know the things that we know that seems anathema to traditional Christian concepts? It's explained here, and it's explained also as to why they don't get it. Have we not all... Remember when you had that first love and you tried to convert everybody you knew, especially your family, loved ones? You know, 
and they give you that blank look or even got mad at you or told you to get out. They didn't get it. Yes. It's because it goes back to what I said before. God the Father must orchestrate it. And it starts with Him. And He's the only one powerful enough to turn on a light so bright to cut through the darkness. You see, Satan the devil's original name, actually it's still his name. Uh, Satan is a descriptive term. It, It means adversary. His name is still Hallel. Lucifer in the, in the Greek. Or actually, that's a Latin word. Yeah. And it means conduit of light or bringer of light. He was to be a bringer of light in relation to Hebrews 1.14. They all were created. All of the angelic realm in total, we read that, was created to facilitate God's plan about us. The heirs of salvation. They all exist for that. That includes him. All of them. And so he was to be a bringer of light in some way to facilitate our journey towards salvation. But he corrupted himself. And instead of bringing light, clarity, he brings confusion and darkness. He's the opposite now. He doesn't bring light. He brings darkness. He foments a dark kingdom, as it were. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Let me break into the text at verse 2. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. (laughs) I'm doing that right now. Not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Yes, check up on the preacher and make sure your conscience is okay with what he's preaching to you. (laughs) Verse 3. But if our gospel be hid... It is hid to them that are lost. And I believe that that translation, and there are other translations that make it clearer, that that is said in context of what follows. It doesn't mean they are lost now, already consigned to the lake of fire. It doesn't mean that at all. It means they are lost to the truths here being stated. They are lost to, to, to the darkness that has been created here. That's the context. If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, lost in the darkness, as it were. Verse 4, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Yes, the God of this world has blinded them. There's a darkness extent in the world. And like I said, only God the Father can turn on a light bright enough to get through that darkness and reach you and me. And that has happened for us. The God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. That's why they don't believe, because they've been blinded. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. But look at verse 6. It's one of my favorite verses of Scripture. It's powerful. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, who said, let there be light, said, let there be light in George's mind. 
Let there be light in John's mind. Let the light shine through to David. Let the light shine through to Nathaniel. Let the light illuminate David. Let the light come on for Wayne. God must do that. And as a result, we have now seen a reflection of Jesus Christ that is accurate. Now we see it for what it is. We have been given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the true face of Jesus Christ. And that must stick in their craw terribly, of course. Now, if you would turn with me as I begin to close over to 1 Peter. I could go on and on and on about the the fate of the fallen angels and all that's going to happen. I could go and and talk about the different kinds of angels, that there are seraphim and, and cherubim, and we talk about the fact that there are actually, apparently, three archangels, although the Bible only addresses Michael as an archangel. It never says that about Gabriel, never says that about Hallel. But we assume that, and I think correctly so, based upon their names. Michael, Gabriel, and Hallel. They all incorporate the almighty name of God. And so clearly they have a function and a a purpose that is unique and special in that regard. They're the only three that are named in, in all of Scripture. But here in 1 Peter, book of 1 Peter, in chapter 5, The scripture tells us that Satan was, he was prideful. He was lifted up with pride and he became full of himself. God is repelled by pride. A proud and haughty heart repels God, but humility attracts him. Let me break into the text at verse 5. In the second part of verse 5, it says here, God resists the proud. Pride turns God off. He resists it and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, consequently, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, your Satan, the devil, As a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. Do you know something about uh, lions? All the big cats, in fact. Tigers, leopards, all of them. They do not roar like a roaring lion. They don't do that until after they've made the kill. They are stealthy. They are silent. They are sneaky. They attack. They kill. And then, then they roar. Yes. And he's walking around like a roaring lion. The implication is he's got something to roar about. Yes. Seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. The body of beliefs that we've been given. The things that we do to reinforce our faith. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and our Father. Resist steadfast in the faith knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect and establish and strengthen and settle you. And now finally, brethren, turn with me, if you will, 
over to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, chapter 1. We know that the lake of fire is expressly made, especially uniquely made for sinners, primarily for Satan and his angels, and any and all who will not repent of their sins, of course, and he will end up there. But this is comforting, and I want to end with these scriptures here. The Apostle Paul is telling the church at Colossae some advice that we should appropriate for our own lives. And he begins here, or let me begin here at verse 10. Paul says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And we're told that over and over again, to increase in the knowledge, to grow in grace and knowledge. If you're not studying and and increasing in knowledge, if your knowledge of God's Word is static and you're not growing, then you're not following the script and you're not obeying. It's something required of us to grow in grace and knowledge that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, his glorious uh, kratos, again is the word, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, constantly being aware and giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet, which has made us hikenu in the Greek, it has enabled us. It has made us competent. It has made us capable. It has made us qualified. We've been given the authority. We have hikeno. We've been enabled, as it were. He has made us to meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness... And the power of darkness is inferred here is the, the dark kingdom and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And so, brethren, I hope that I was able to uh, give you some things to think about in regards to the angelic rebellion and what caused it, perhaps, and where it's all heading. And... Uh, I'll just close with that and say God be with you.